Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippin, your host, and today we're having a conversation with Professor Bettina Love. And I'm going to introduce her in just a minute, but we have some exciting news on the podcast, and that is I have a brand new co-host who will be joining me um, for the monthly podcast, Lucia Halsether, who is at Yale University. Lucia, would you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm really happy to be here. Um, as Tina said, my name is Lucia, and I am a doctoral candidate in religious studies and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Yale University. Um, I write about attempts to make capitalism so-called socially responsible, um, and I'm really happy to be here. Well, uh, we're really glad to have you. Um, Bettina Love is the Associate Professor in the Department of Educational Theory and Practice in Early Childhood and Elementary Education at the University of Georgia, one of my favorite places for constructivist and uh, liberationist um, uh, teacher learning. And um, she is the author of two books and numerous articles. Uh, her first book, Hip Hop's Little Sister Speak, Negotiating Hip-Hop Identities and Politics in the New South, and uh, the book that I think is essential for educational courses, and I'm certainly going to use it in my the next time I teach religion, education, and activism. Uh, we want to do more than survive. Abolitionist teaching and the pursuit of educational freedom that came out last February from Beacon Press. Um, she's also written... Uh, a new article this last March that I think is um, really uh, necessary to read, and it's called, um, um, let me see, it's called Dear White Teachers, You Can't Love Your Black Students If You Don't Know Them, While Loving, Quote, All Students Isn't Good Enough, and it's in the March 18th, 2019 Educational Week. And I will put links to this on the Nothing Never Happens website. Okay, so let's start the conversation. There's so much to talk about. Okay, Lucia. Okay. Um, so, Professor Love, we'd love to just start out with a general question and see where the conversation goes from there. Um, you are a professor who teaches future educators at the University of Georgia. And I wonder, when you are when you are facing your classes, what are the main principles and practices you try to impart to those future teachers, um, whether through the content that you explain or through the way that you teach? Um, what are the what is the what is the thing? Like maybe if you could just have one, um, if you, if you could impart one thing, what is that thing? Well, thank you both for for having me, um, and thank you for your question. I would say the one thing that I try to impart to all my students, no matter what class it is, particularly if it's a class focused on education, is that you can't teach something that you don't know. You can't say that you are culturally relevant, that you understand culturally sustaining pedagogy, if you have never examined someone's culture, studied someone's culture, read about someone's culture. So, you know, I, I try to get my students to understand that to be a culturally responsive, culturally relevant student means that you are willing to engage with students' culture beyond just the service material. 
And that means you are willing to engage with students full being, their full selves, who they are, their community, mm -hmm. their families, uh, their histories, their ancestors. And so what I try to do in my class is, you know, have my students really engage with material that tries to tell a fuller story, a more beautiful story, a, robo a more robust story of mm -hmm. experiences of black and brown folks in this country. Yeah, and in um and in your hip hop uh, pedagogy book, you uh, you define hip hop pedagogy. You say you see it as an artistic, complex, and commodified form of um, black popular culture that impacts our youth and informs their identities. And so this whole idea of an embodied um, learning that the whole person is in the classroom. Right. Um, yeah, right. what kind of uh, theory informs that? I know you've done some work with Chris Emden, you know, who wrote, uh, who's up at Teachers College Columbia, who wrote for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. Um, you know, there there seems to be a growing literature in this. Um, and so what what is, what is in, to uh, go off Lucia's question, what, what kinds of theories um, you know, bell hooks and others, of course, who, that have informed um, your your teaching. Right. So, you know, I, I tried to write my book not for white folks. I tried to write a book that was deeply embedded in the ideas for black people. And if white folks mm -hmm. read the book, that was great. But I didn't want mm -hmm. to write a book for white folks. And so the book that I wanted to write was informed by and much of black feminism. And so. Yeah. You know, what's important about the book is that I never say the word black feminism, but the word the book is so much about black feminism. It's about raising mm -hmm. up the voices of black women. So I talk about Ella Baker in the book. I talk about black women and their and their participation in abolitionists and the freedom movement. And so I really wanted folks to read a book and say, oh, wow, I've, I've learned a lot and I've learned a lot about black women and women of color. And I didn't have to put that label black feminist on it. Um, yeah. So black feminism, you know, this idea that we're going to talk about communities and communities of color in a loving, thriving way and try to get rid of all these isms and eradicate these isms and teach mm -hmm. about these isms. That's a very black feminist praxis. And so I, I, you know, I am a black feminist and the book is written in that and that type of theory. And, and also critical race theory is a deep part of the book because I, I'm trying to argue that racism, which is this thing that over time, uh, has mutated, has changed, but it always stays the same somehow. Um, it, it leaves black and brown folks and folks of color and what I call in the book dark folks, um, taking that from the boys, is that it leaves us in a life of exhaustion. And so we want to do more than survive this place. And I think that's a very critical race theory stance to take because critical race theory says that racism is permanent, it's fixed. Um, and so to, to be, you know, the New York Times just released the you know, 1619 project. And yeah. to know that we're 400 years into this thing, you know, that's a very critical race stance to say, hey, we're tired, we're exhausted, and we're tired mm -hmm. of just surviving um, America. We want to thrive here. So very much informed by critical race theory and black feminism. Yeah, and one of the things I really um, uh, got, uh, one of the takeaways from your uh, abolitionist teaching book was you're rejecting the dualism of survival and freedom. It's not survival, but it's uh, you, the goal is freedom. Right. But I think we always put those two things up against each other. 
yeah. um, as if there is no continuum, mm -hmm. as if it's not a long, long, hard fight that black and brown folks know. And it's not as if if I don't want freedom, then I then I want survival. You know, that duality, um, I think, really paralyzes the conversations about ideas of liberation. Um, mm -hmm. Because we're seen to just want we we're stuck in the idea that we have to have one or the other. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of end the book talking about I'm, I'm tired of that duality. I'm tired of being stuck in that place of either going to survive this or we're going to fight like tooth and nails for freedom. Um, mm -hmm. Both of we, we lose in both of those things. Um, mm -hmm. because I think, you know, fighting for freedom, you can't you can't do that by yourself. Mm hmm. Um, and it has to be solidarity and it has to be love, it has to be justice and it has to be a movement of people um, that want freedom. And so I, I kind of try to play with that duality and, and have conversations around it at the, at the last chapter of the book. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciate about your work is how in that sort of challenging of a duality and the foregrounding of, of black feminist theory and praxis, um, your work breaks down a barrier between theories in one place and practices somewhere else. But the sort of grassroots movements, what we are doing in classrooms is created, it's driven by theories we already have, theoretical frameworks we already have, and it's, and it's reproducing them and enacting them. And there are, are options to break cycles of white supremacy and patriarchy and homophobia in classrooms. Um, one of the things I was most drawn to in your work is the way it, um, in particularly in your in your re most recent book, is how it bridges a conversation about histories of organizing with um, educational practice. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about this. What is it about the traditions of um, Ella Baker? Nick, abolitionist, that how did how were you drawn to that? And what would you say about the overlap between organizing for liberation and what happens in classrooms every day? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I was really drawn, I've been drawn to Ella Baker for a very long time. And I mean, as a black feminist, you know, I've I've read about Ella Baker and I've studied Ella Baker and the freedom schools and all the wonderful, beautiful things that Ella Baker was able to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to have I wanted to find a way to talk about her even more. So I was like, I'm writing a book. How can you not talk about Ella Baker? Hmm. But what made Ella Baker so important? And I, I don't think people give Ella Baker enough credit was that she believed in this idea and developed this idea of participatory democracy. And the one thing that we often forget about when it comes to women of color and black women and movements is that they didn't just do one thing. They were the organizers. They were the teachers. They were the critical strategists. Like they, they did all of these things at the same time and did them all well. Yeah. And so when I think about what it means for movements and education, we need people who believe in the work of participatory democracy, which means that we're not going to have a top down. We're going to get the voices from the people who have been pushed to the margins and we're going to center their voices. And their voice is going to push the, our agenda. And that's what Ella Baker was so good at. And what I tried to explain in the book is not only her ideas about democracy, but how she did it. You know, Ella Baker would get folks in the room and she was so strategic and so methodical and so and, and so well respected 
that she could get a diverse group of people in a room and they all leave with her agenda. That's how good she was. Um, and so I wanted to try to take up her story and talk about her in a way in which the people understand that for educational freedom, um, we have to have folks who demonstrate and understand what it means to be an organizer mm-hmm. and the beauty of what it means to be an organizer and can organize people for a justice movement. And so I think in education, and I, and I say this all the time when I go and I talk around and I talk at schools, is that it is very, and David Stallball uh, taught me this, you know, it's very ahistorical to think that one person can change something in an institution. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 it's powered by people. And so in education, what happens is that a district that is struggling um, with, with teachers who are cautiously insensitive, a district that is struggling with racist attacks on students, they will hire one person to be the diversity officer or the inclusion officer or the equity officer. And mm-hmm. once they hire that one person, ta-da, mm-hmm. everything is gone. No, that doesn't erase anything and it really doesn't do anything. I'm excited and I'm happy for that person to be put in that position. But mm-hmm. if it's not a team of people, if it's not a team of people that wants to empower the community, then you just have one person. And so I wanted to write about ideas of democracy and how you push democracy from the concepts of black women who I think have done it well and queer folks who have done it well. So educators can understand that it's, it's not more than one person. This is about movement building and folks like Ella Baker have given us a blueprint of how to, how to, how to movement build for justice and for love and for equity. Yeah, and she was working with young people. And she was working with young people, yep. Yeah. So when, to build off that, when you face your teacher education classes at um, University of Georgia in Clark County, right? That's the name of the county uh, in Athens. Um, you know, you've got a, a group of students who are new to some of these ideas. Uh, what kinds of, um, I mean, how do you structure the discussion uh, in a way um, that is participatory democracy in your classroom. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, for, for me, I, I think it's students really have to learn these things. Mm-hmm. I think we move way too fast in teacher education. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you know, we now have degrees where people can get a degree in equity. How can you get a degree in equity? Or, you know, you have a master's in social justice and you're 21 years old. How do you have a master's in social justice at 21 years old? And so I, I think that we, we oftentimes have to slow down. And so my classes, I don't I don't I don't try to jump into like how to do democracy and participatory, participatory democracy in my class. What I try to do is teach them first that you are a cultural being and being a cultural being, you come to the classroom with your own stuff. Yeah. That's first and foremost, like, because if we skip that part, all you're going to do is go to a meeting and center yourself. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to take it really slow with my, with my students and introduce these things, but I don't, I don't try to introduce them unless until they've done the work of trying to think about what it means to be a college student, what does it mean to go to University of Georgia? What does it mean to walk into a profession uh, that you're going to be teaching black and brown children and the 
and the majority of the teachers, maybe like yourself, are 80 to 88 percent white. And you come from a class, you come from a race, you come from a gender, you come from a geographical location. Those conversations have to be had before we move on to, well, let's talk about participatory democracy. You're not ready for that yet. Yeah. So I really, yeah. I really try, I really try to s- slow it down. And sometimes it's frustrating because you want, you want this to happen much faster. But we mm-hmm. also got to realize, and we're not just talking, you know, this is not just the University of Georgia. This is college campuses all around the country, particularly in teacher ed programs. You know, these are 21, 20, 21 year old kids, mm-hmm. young adults uh, who've never questioned these things, who've never thought about these things. And I get them a year and a half before they're going to become teachers. Wow. Yeah. And I only got 16 weeks. I got one class. Hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of work that we have to unpack with folks in teacher ed. But I think teacher ed and I talk about this in the book called the teacher uh, the teacher education gap. I think we really we really try to rush these things in teacher education and not giving our teachers a good foundation of what it means to be an advocate for social justice. You know, we have classes on culturally relevant pedagogy, but you haven't you have you've gone your whole career, your whole college four years without taking one class in African American studies. So how do you how are you learning about culturally relevant pedagogy? Yeah. Yeah. Some of these things just just don't add up for me. And so for me, it's to teach almost a black history course in my teacher ed classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what you're saying now reminds me of your um discussions about gimmicks in education. Like gimmicks that sometimes I think about these as tricks. Like do the tricks yeah. you pull out of your hat as a teacher to manage your classroom and that word management is it's such a violent word. Um, <laughs> it means that you're kind of like containing your students. And I think about, sometimes I think about um, the sort of cultural literacy gimmicks, not grounded in history, not grounded in a robust critique of power um, in that same way. And I wonder if you could talk about, have, elaborate on this um, this issue, especially as it pertains to the um, the, the rise of administrative positions in diversity management and um, and also the sort of the foregrounding by organizations like TFA that they are agents of this kind of cross-cultural encounter. Where do you think that comes from? Um, why do you think it's accelerated now? Well, I think I mean, I think someone like you who studied capitalism understands it very, very well. There is no real philanthropy or altruism or genuine care. As Paulo Fiede said in Pedagogy of Press, there's true generosity and there's false generosity. And under capitalism, 99%, you're going to get false generosity. And so you Mm -hmm. have all of these high-level faculty administrative positions that talk about diversity and equity um, because that's what capitalism allows them to have those conversations, right? It makes them feel good. That makes capitalists feel good. That makes us think that change is going to happen because we have appointed somebody. And another part of capitalism and whiteness is to love titles. Hmm. So 
we're in that you know particular state of what capitalism drives in our country and so you know i'm not fooled by any of these positions um and like i said i think there's some really good people who have these positions that are really working and trying their hardest um but it is very hard to change institutions mm-hmm. um particularly institutions that don't want to change but they have to say they do but in actuality they don't want to change um yeah. and so that's just i mean that's just the world that we live in as a capitalistic patriarchal society uh that is deeply embedded in ideas of racism and capitalism so mm-hmm. i i understand you know why these positions are there and i think there's good people like i said who do that work um but it's it's almost impossible to make the changes that you want to make and to make the changes be sustainable because of the institution not willing to change at its very core. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where um, the conversation about community engagement and the and the work uh, of grassroots organizing comes in yes. as you talk about. Um, if I can now, just because I love your writing at, in in this new book, um, it's it's beautifully written. Um, oh, thank you. On page two, uh, and when you you know you're defining abolitionist teaching, um, this book is about mattering, and I I do want you to talk about mattering at some point. Uh, mattering, surviving, resisting, thriving, healing, imagining, freedom, love, and joy all elements of abolitionist work and teaching. Abolitionist teaching is the practice of working in solidarity with communities of color while drawing on the imagination, creativity, refusal, remembering, visionary thinking, healing, rebellious spirit, boldness, determination, and subversiveness of abolitionists to eradicate injustice in and outside of schools. I mean, that is an inspiration for these uh, rather <laughs> apocalyptic times we're in with our educational systems. Um, yeah, so each one of those we could have, you know, an hour conversation about. But um, um, the the whole idea of mattering and you talk, I mean, you, you were getting there when you were talking about your the social location of your students and getting them to acknowledge their own sort of uh, autoethnographies. Um, you know that what you're saying as a as a teacher is you matter and 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 you're you're mentoring and modeling for them how to do that with their elementary um kids in the classroom i think so could you talk about uh, about your ex- some of your experiences with that yeah you know i i wasn't you know my teaching I was young and I was trying to be a teacher and I did a lot of things right. and I did a lot of things wrong. And mm-hmm. the one thing that I really always wanted and I talk about in the book, you know, I had teachers that they they showed me that I mattered to them. And the way the mattering in the book came about is because I was very much interested in having a conversation around Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And the the title of the book was originally going to be called uh, Mattering Pedagogy. Hmm. And so I really wanted to talk about why mattering is so important to black and brown children. And 
I tried to use my own life and my own community and my own teachers to demonstrate and to show how I felt loved and cared for and special through my community. And that's what it means to matter. And matter isn't about, you know, the money that you have, or the clothes or the car that you drive. Mattering is about the people in your community and the people in your family who love you, who care for you. And what would it mean for this country to say that black and brown folks matter? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that was my that was my ideas of writing the book around mattering is to think about the teachers that I talk about in the book, Mr. Clayton and Ms. Johnson and how they they looked after me, they loved me, they cared for me, they were there when things weren't going well in my family, they wanted to talk about that me, they wanted me to, to know that they were there. Mr. Clayton watched me in the morning play basketball and made sure I was okay. Like, what would it mean for a country to, to take black and brown folks up in that way? To love us, to care for us, to look after us, um, to make sure that we are surviving and trying to push us to thrive. Um, Like, what would it mean for a country to radically, this country, to radically have those ideas about black and brown folks? And so I wanted to say, like, when we say black lives matter, this is what we mean. And I've had it. And I'm here today because of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to I wanted to talk talk about that in a particular type of way and to say, you know, black and brown folks in this country, you know, we have done so many amazing things. We have gotten the short end of the stick if we get a stick. And what we have done with it is just you have to marvel at that. You have to respect that. You have to love that. And so I I wanted to write about the ways in which um, we should matter to this country and then the ways in which we matter to ourselves. And then classrooms can take up that idea of mattering. You know, I I talk about in the book, you know, what we mean by restorative justice. We're not talking about um, rules and regulations. We're talking about restoring justice. Um, And that's a radical thing. Uh, We're not talking about a circle. We're talking about radically looking at schools and policies different. Um, Mm -hmm. Teachers to be abolitionists. And that means when you see injustice, you do something about it. When you see harm being done to a child, you you do something about it. You take a risk. Abolitionists took risks for other people's children. And that's the beauty of, of, of what an abolitionist did. They put their home, their family, their farm, uh, their, their reputation, they put it on the line. And so what would it mean for us to radically think different in our country? And like you said, I think we're in times right now that call for us to be abolitionists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the very structure, I mean, I sit here in Atlanta, my daughter went to City of Atlanta Public Schools uh, that were drastically resegregated, to use Jonathan Kozel's phrase and others. Um, And so to see the um, inequity of the system um, at, you know, she was a diversity at most of her schools as a uh, as a white child. So but the schools were wonderful and they everyone mattered and still with no funds and uh, no support. at, at the elementary level. And then, of course, there's the charter school, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, public charter school system that um, uh, varies in its um, support. So, um, you know, it seems like the very structure of education in this country is that you talk about, um, you know, the inequities there are are 
growing. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not they're not growing not by design. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I live in the city of Atlanta as well. I live, you know, maybe five minutes away from Agnes Scott. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we know about the city of Atlanta, if there's a really good book called None of the Above, and it's about the Atlanta cheating scandal. But yeah. it's way more than about the Atlanta cheating scandal. It really gets into the politics of Atlanta and the education system in Atlanta. Mm. And, and what and what we what we see in that book is how gentrification and mm. the housing industry and big business has their hands in in education every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're pushing people out of the city left and right. You know, they're using things like the Beltline and Atlantic Station and Pond City Market. And all those things are are a part of pushing black and brown folks and poor folks out of the city. Mm-hmm. And the schools will reflect that. You know, there's an African American, there's an African proverb that says, you know, always ask how the children are. Mm-hmm. And Atlanta can't call itself a, a global leader in the world when the children here are not well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it just it's, it's happening all over the country, though. I mean, black and brown folks are being pushed out of their homes and their communities and the schools are, are failing and underserved because of that. And they're taking and building charter schools. And we know charter schools are an engine mm-hmm. for gentrification. Yeah. Right. With no with no statistical numbers that say they're any better than public schools. But yeah. they have they have they control the narrative. And so, you know, it's, it's cities like Atlanta, New York, Detroit, where these things, New Orleans, where these things are going on and we're seeing it, we're watching it. And it's hard to stop capitalism. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the city of Atlanta is is one of the most capitalistic cities uh, in the world. And it's a yeah. chocolate city run by chocolate folks still pushing, cho- still pushing chocolate people out. Mm. 